I'm very happy to have everyone here today. Um, we have Dr. Langford back with us and she presented last week and has also done some presentations in the prior week. So uh, Dr. Langford is OB trained MFM and then did her critical care fellowship here through anesthesia critical care. Um, obviously really an expert in all things related to uh, OBGYN and critical illness. Um, today, she's going to talk about gas exchange and uh, ventilation in critically ill OB patients. Um, and then before I turn it over to her, um, she did write in the chat that she's going to be teaching um, an OB SCCM right, class mm -hmm. um, here in Baltimore, um, which she's already opened up to lots of the fellows have probably already heard from me about this. Um, but we really wanted to invite it to all the fellows who are participating in the DC5 curriculum today. Um, and so maybe Ali will just say an, another minute or two about the course. And then I think she put her um, her email in the chat. So if anyone's interested in attending, it's a pretty small fee for the course, um, pretty affordable. Um, I look forward to it. I'm hoping I can get to go. So maybe Ali will just say another one or two things about it and then you can get started whenever you're ready. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, the OBFCCS course um, is put on by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. They have a number of courses um, for fundamentals of critical care science. And um, one of them is one of the obstetric courses that it's a two-day course. Um, we sort of go over kind of multiple facets of critical care in the obstetric patient, um, kind of the spectrum of preeclampsia, eclampsia, um, mechanical ventilation, uh, renal disease, cardiac arrest in pregnancy, and um, usually it is didactic in the morning simulation in the afternoon. Um, we are doing it at Baltimore Washington Medical Center. Um, we did it in the spring and or in the fall, sorry, and we'll be doing it in the spring um, just because of the availability of the SIM Center, but they generally provide breakfast and lunch. Um, and the fee is about, depending on the number of um, participants, it's going to be anywhere from about $150 to $200. So if that's something that you think would be helpful, um, please just send me an email. Um, I put my email in the chat. Um, I'd love to get a head count uh, so that we can start ordering the books. But um, I think the course is valuable for providers, um, nurses, anyone that potentially will be treating um, the obstetric patient in, the, in your um, ICU. Great. So um, if there's any questions about that, I'm happy to answer anything. You can shoot me an email or at the end of the presentation, we can talk about it some more. Um, so today, um, this is sort of not even part two, but a little bit of a transition in our discussion. Last week, we did preeclampsia and eclampsia. Um, and this week, we're going to do gas exchange and pulmonary ventilation in the critically ill obstetric patient. Um, for our learning objectives and some of the questions that I hope to answer by the end of the presentation um, include describing the anatomy of the placenta and physiology of gas exchange and placental transfer of nutrients. So something you probably haven't thought about since medical school, but we're gonna go back to um, the basics with regards to the placenta. So that's gonna create the foundation for our understanding of gas exchange and why we set certain uh, parameters in terms of SpO2, PO2, and PCO2 goals for our pregnant patients. Uh, we will be reviewing the physiologic changes and the respiratory parameters during pregnancy, uh, reviewing the validity of the ARDSNET protocol in pregnant women and arguments for low tidal volume ventilation and arguments against. Um, we want to evaluate how maternal blood gases reflect fetal blood gas at the time of delivery. 
Um, can we use prone position ventilation in pregnancy? Is this an effective strategy? And then does delivery impact maternal ventilation and oxygenation? So trying to determine the optimal timing of delivery and how delivery is going to ultimately impact the trajectory for the critically ill obstetric patient. And then ICU stat deliveries, can we avoid this? And I'll talk about our experience at the University of Maryland, primarily during COVID, but also um, our experience with ECMO and complications that we've encountered with need for deliveries emergently at the bedside. So again, just getting back to the basics, um, the placenta plays a key role in ensuring a successful pregnancy. Um, the placenta performs a diverse set of functions, including transport of gases and metabolites, immunologic protection, and the production of steroids and uh, protein hormones. The placenta is a discoid organ, and macroscopically, it consists of two surfaces or plates. Um, the chorionic plate, which is where the umbilical cord is attached, and the basal plate that sort of abuts the maternal endometrium. Between the two plates is a cavity that's filled um, with maternal blood, which is delivered from the maternal branches of the maternal uterine arteries that branch into the spiral arteries through openings in the basal plate. The fetal component of the placenta arises from a series of elaborately branched villus trees that arise from the inner surface of the chorionic plate and project into the cavity of the placenta. These villus trees are bathed in maternal blood and allow the exchange of gases and nutrients with the fetal blood circulating within the villi. The maternal circulation to the placenta is not fully established until the end of the first trimester, so really after about week 10, which is really important because organogenesis essentially takes place in this really low oxygen environment of approximately 20 millimeters of mercury and which may protect against, against free radical mediated teratogenesis. So the driving force for placental gas exchange is the partial pressure gradient between the maternal and fetal circulations. Fetal blood has a much lower oxygen saturation and PO2 values compared to maternal blood. And despite the difference, the, or despite the much lower oxygen saturation and PO2, the oxygen consumption rate per kilogram in the fetus is approximately twice that of the basal adult value. So the factor that makes this possible is the fetal cardiac output. For example, in a 50 kilogram adult human, the cardiac output would have to be 11.5 liters per minute to match that of the fetal cardiac output, rather than the normal resting cardiac output of five liters per minute. Fetal cardiac output compensates for the low level of fetal oxygenation by maintaining a high ratio of blood flow to oxygen consumption through the circulation of the individual fetal organs. So I've just included some um, numbers here that compare the maternal arterial circulation and the fetal umbilical vein. 
So just recalling that the fetal umbilical vein is going to carry the most oxygen-rich blood, and the fetal um, umbilical artery is going to have more deoxygenated blood. So, so that's why it seems counterintuitive, but we'll transport. compare the uterine and blood flow. And there have been numerous studies that look at the effects of decreasing uterine blood flow, blood flow, decreasing the umbilical so in blood the flow, maternal and shifting the oxygen generally in association the uterine vessels. Fetal blood the oxygen saturation right, is going to be approximately ventilating the maternal lungs with the and gas O2 mixtures and reducing the placental exchange surface by 50%. And the fetal umbilical vein and even as the oxygen saturation is constant difference and a between maternal PO2 and umbilical vein PO2. So placental respiratory gas exchange is not controlled by short-term homeostatic mechanisms that would minimize the effect of any of these changes on fetal oxygenation. So a decrease in PO2 in either uterine or umbilical circulation does not necessarily evoke a compensatory decrease in the uterine umbilical venous PO2 difference, which as I said, remains pretty constant. And this is mediated by the placenta itself, which again, the oxygen consumption in the placenta is pretty profound, but can help maintain this balance between uterine PO2 and umbilical vein PO2. And we know that in pregnancy, the oxygen dissociation curve is shifted to the left, which fetal um, blood has a higher affinity for oxygen. So what happens in the setting of hypoxia or what can cause hypoxia? And oftentimes we can see in placentas with a decreased placental surface area, that's when we'll start to see signs of hypoxia. That can occur in a placental eruption where you have to have generally more than 50% of that placental surface with an eruption before you start to see fetal consequences. There can be impaired uterine umbilical PO2 differentiation. So what I mean by that, if you have an incredibly thick placenta that is oxygen consuming, then you can have that um, unequal distribution of blood flow between the umbilical and the uterine PO2. And as the PO2 falls, there's a compensatory mechanism in the fetus that allows an increase in blood flow to the fetal central nervous system and the fetal cardiovascular system um, at the expense of other parts of the body. So that's why in these chronic hypoxic models, as we saw with preeclampsia, you start to see fetal growth restriction. And sometimes that is first evidenced by um, a decrease in the abdominal circumference, again, because of the shunting of blood to the fetal CNS and the cardiovascular system. And as you start to get more hypoxia, that's when you start to see impairment in the umbilical artery flow um, as measured by the resistance in the umbilical artery on ultrasound. And then the limit of a, um, of a successful circulatory defense against acute hypoxia is reached when the perfusion rate of the CNS and the heart has reached its maximum. Again, that's when we start to see deleterious effects in the fetus, when it can no longer compensate for that hypoxia. What about carbon dioxide transfer? So the diffusional transfusion of carbon dioxide from the fetus to the mother requires the pCO2 of fetal blood to be higher than that of the PO2 or pCO2, sorry, of maternal blood. The umbilical venous pCO2 is approximately three to seven millimeters of mercury higher than uterine venous pCO2. And certainly in the umbilical arterial pCO2 is gonna be much higher than that because that's gonna have a much higher concentration of deoxygenated blood returning to the placenta from the fetus. 
A consequence of the high diffusibility of the carbon dioxide across the placenta is that respiratory disturbances of acid-base balance in the mother can cause, with delay of only minutes, simultaneous disturbances in the fetus. And I think this is one of the things that I sort of harp on, especially with patients that we have that are mechanically ventilated in, this, in the ICU, is that we're going to see much faster disturbances in the fetus when the PCO2 is exceeding our threshold, as opposed to when there is hypoxia. So information is lacking for humans and other species with a hemochorial placenta concerning the rate at which a metabolic disturbance of acid-base balance in the maternal compartment is transmitted to the fetal compartment. Certainly, we know an acute change in the PCO2 is going to be manifest in the fetus much sooner than a chronic change, but we're not sure how rapidly that occurs. Transitioning to the um, physiologic changes in the pulmonary system during pregnancy, um, knowing this foundation is really important so then we can identify what is abnormal and how do we utilize these changes in the physiology when optimizing our mechanical support. There is um, a respiratory alkalosis with generally the pH ranges from 7.4 to 7.47. This is primarily driven by an increase in the or, uh, minute ventilation and an increase in the tidal volume, all from the effects of progesterone. So we see an increase in the tidal volume or um, by approximately 40%, and we see a really minimal increase in the respiratory rate. So if you see a patient with a respiratory rate greater than 24, greater than 25, it's abnormal for pregnancy. Because of this respiratory alkalosis, again, you see this decrease in your PCO2 to a baseline of about 28 to 34, and you can see a compensatory decrease in your bicarb from 18 to 22. We talked about a PO2 generally around 100 to 106 millimeters of mercury, but in the supine position in the second and third trimester, we can see a drop in the PCO2 to 90 millimeters of mercury. There is a decrease in the functional residual capacity and residual volume by 20%. And there is an acute change in the airway and in the third trimester and specifically during labor. Pregnant women are more prone to hypoxemia due to decreased functional residual capacity, increased alveolar ventilation, and increased oxygen consumption. In addition, they're at risk for aspiration due to delayed gastric emptying and functional displacement of the lower esophagus. All of these are important considerations when you are intubating the pregnant patient. This graph just reiterates exactly what we said before that you see this increase in alveolar ventilation, minute ventilation, and tidal volume with really a, minute, uh, a modest increase in the respiratory rate. So the increase in the minute ventilation is primarily driven by an increase in tidal volume. And here I've just outlined the pH, PO2, and PCO2 comparisons between pregnancy and non-pregnant patients. I'd like to briefly discuss the Malampati score and how we use this um, and how this can change during labor. The incidence of failed tracheal intubation in the pregnant population is perhaps eight times higher than that of the non-pregnant population. Difficult or failed intubations after induction of general anesthesia for cesarean delivery remains one of the major contributing factors to anesthesia-related maternal complications. 
soft tissue changes such as airway edema are an invariable association of pregnancy, and this may contribute to difficult intubation. The Samsung modification of the malampati airway classification is based on the visibility of the soft palate, um, the fossil pillars, and the uvula, and is used to predict the likelihood of a difficult airway or failed intubation. There have been several studies that look at the changes in the airway throughout pregnancy when comparing the first and the third trimester, and there have been studies that look at the changes in the airway just during labor itself. So in a study that looked at the malampati airway class at 12 weeks and 38 weeks, the authors noted that there's an increase in class four by about 34%. There is a correlation between airway class and maternal weight gain throughout the pregnancy. And not only maternal weight gain, but during labor itself, you see changes in fluid retention and for pharyngeal edema that can change the malampati class. In a study by Kodali et al., the authors looked at the malampati class pre-labor on the left and post-labor on the right. As you can see, the visualization of the soft palate changes significantly throughout the labor course. In their study, they had 33% of the airways changed by one class, 5% changed by two classes, and overall, out of 61 patients that underwent cesarean delivery and analysis, eight parturians uh, had a an airway class four. 30 parturians had an airway class three and four compared to only 21 in the beginning of labor. And as you can see in the upper left, we have patients that are very challenging airways with a very thick, short neck and an anterior airway. So if there's a patient that is laboring in your unit, which may be the case, you wanna make sure you're examining the airway throughout labor and anticipating a difficult airway. So you wanna optimize your patient for intubation. And the best way to do this is to pre-oxygenate the patient well. We discussed how these patients are at greatest risk for hypoxemia due to decreased functional residual capacity. So pre-oxygenating uh, pre these patients with high flow nasal cannula and sometimes the addition of BiPAP in order to get their SpO2 greater than 100% for several, or at 100% for several minutes prior to intubation. Always using your left uterine tilt so you're minimizing aortic cable compression and reducing your risk of hypotension. And you wanna prevent hypotension, which reduces uterine perfusion, which can lead to those late decelerations in the fetal heart rate tracing. Oftentimes, we'll use phenylephrine at the time of intubation to maintain a MAP greater than 65. Choose your induction agents wisely, whether you're using um, succinylcholine or rocuronium. If you're anticipating a difficult airway, perhaps succinylcholine is a better choice so that if you're unable to intubate the patient, that you can bag the patient until reversal of their neuromuscular blockade. We use rapid sequence intubation because all patients are at risk for aspiration and you, and you expect that all pregnant patients have um, a full abdomen. And you wanna ventilate gently once you do get these patients intubated. You wanna avoid hyperventilation and hypocarbia because again, that can cause uterine vasoconstriction, um, uterine contractions and fetal decelerations. The goal is to maintain hemodynamic stability 
and prevent maternal hypoxemia, which can then result in non-reassuring fetal heart tones and need for emergent cesarean delivery, which is what we did see um, during our intubations with COVID. So one of the most reassuring things about the management of respiratory failure in pregnancy, if there's anything that's reassuring at all, is that the principles of treatment are relatively safe and the principles are similar to those, to those that we use in the non-pregnant population. The fundamentals of treatment include identification and treatment of the underlying cause, avoiding volume overload, maternal and fetal supportive care, low tidal volume ventilation with some caveats, prone position ventilation, application of pharmacologic therapy such as neuromuscular blockade and steroids, um, and if all of the above interventions fail, consideration for ECMO. In addition, there's ongoing assessment for possible delivery. Indications for mechanical ventilation, again, similar to the non-pregnant population, but severe respiratory or combined respiratory and metabolic acidosis, a sustained respiratory rate greater than 40 breaths per minute, an abnormal breathing pattern suggestive of increased respiratory workload or respiratory fatigue, failed non-invasive ventilation, a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio of less than 100, altered mental status, and severe hypoxemia with or without fetal compromise. The pregnant patient has very little oxygen reserve and has the potential to desaturate very quickly following the administration of your induction agents. Preoxygenation with high flow nasal cannula, non-rebreather, or an alternative form of non-invasive ventilation, such as BiPAP, may prevent rapid maternal and fetal deterioration and need for emergent delivery at the time of intubation. Prolonged use of non-invasive ventilation should be used with caution, and it should be reserved with patients with mild ARDS who are hemodynamically stable. A lack of clinical improvement within 60 minutes or improved oxygenation after the initiation of non-invasive ventilation should prompt evaluation for intubation and mechanical ventilation. Unfortunately, during COVID, um, we observed a rapid progression of patients that went from nasal cannula to high flow nasal cannula and need for intubation within 24 hours of presentation to the hospital. In 1998, the first single center randomized control trial provided support for the use of low tidal volume ventilation in ARDS. The investigators compared low tidal volume ventilation defined as six um, cc's per kg and allowed permissive hypercapnia compared to conventional ventilation with a tidal volume of 12 mLs per kg. They reported an improved 28-day survival in the low tidal volume ventilation group, and they also re demonstrated reduced rates of barotrauma and increased rates of liberation from mechanical ventilation in the low tidal volume ventilation group. Following the single-center study, a multi-center study known as the ARDS network enrolled over 800 patients and assigned them to low tidal volume ventilation um, versus conventional ventilation with 12 ml per kg. And enrollment was actually stopped early because of the investigators demonstrated improved survival in the low tidal volume ventilation group and a higher number of ventilation-free days. Following these studies emerged our low tidal volume, high FO, or low FiO2, sorry, and a high PEEP strategy. How does this apply to our pregnant population? 
So all of the landmark studies in ARDS did not include pregnant patients, and the treatment, such as low tidal volume ventilation, has been extrapolated to the pregnant population. How much permissive hypercapnia do we allow? Well, we know um, that fetal perfusion and gas exchange is dependent on the oxygen and carbon dioxide gradients between the maternal and fetal circulations. In an acidotic mother, secondary to respiratory acidosis in the setting of permissive hypercapnia, the fetus is much more prone to develop rapid acidemia. In the ARDSNET study, the mean partial pressure of carbon dioxide only ranged from 40 to 44 millimeters of mercury on days one through seven in the low tidal volume ventilation group. This was compared to a PCO2 of 35 to 40 in the conventional tidal volume group. This is important because in the setting of a normal pH, the fetus can often tolerate brief periods of elevated partial pressure of carbon dioxide into the 40s and possibly into the 50s. And I would make the argument that when the partial pressure of carbon dioxide approaches 50 or when the pH becomes abnormal, then one must have a strategy to either increase the minute ventilation or if all mechanical ventilation strategies are maximized, consider ECMO. The second question becomes, is low tidal volume ventilation appropriate for pregnant patients in whom there's a physiologic increase in the tidal volume and minute ventilation in the second or third trimester? So the question then becomes, are the lower tidal volume more protective or is maintaining a plateau pressure less than 30 more protective? And of note, in the ARDSNET trial, the conventional ventilation strategy with 12 mLs per kg had plateau pressures up to 50 um, centimeters of water. So no wonder we saw so much lung injury in that group. We may only know the answer to this question if we look at transpulmonary pressures during mechanical ventilation in the pregnant patients, which unfortunately this has not been done. And one of the last questions is prone position ventilation has beneficial in the pregnant patients as in the non-pregnant population. So we know that labor or prone position is labor intensive. It may pro um, provide difficulties monitoring the fetus and intervening emergently in the setting of fetal distress can be challenging. In several minutes, we'll look at some of the data for prone position ventilation in our pregnant population. So arguments or using low tidal volume ventilation um, in our pregnant patients is that we know that there is reduced mortality. So similar to the ARDSNET, when they saw reduced 28-day mortality, there um, is a study that looked at ARDS in pregnancy in 1992, prior to the um, initiation of low tidal volume ventilation. And we saw that the maternal mortality associated with ARDS in pregnancy was as high as 44%. In addition, complications associated with mechanical ventilation occurred in 81% of cases. This isn't... Um, in uh, alternatively, in patients um, with uh, pregnant patients during the H1N1 pandemic, with a maternal mortality with approximately um, eight to ten percent, and COVID with a maternal mortality of less than five percent when low tidal volume ventilation was used. Again. Um, the low tidal volume ventilation may not truly require per high um, piece 
PACO2. Again, in the ARDSNET, the uh, mean PACO2 was up to about 45, which again is tolerated by the fetus as long as it doesn't occur in an acute fashion. And permissive hypoventilation as it is applied to patients with ARDS is not usually a sudden change in the minute ventilation, allowing for fetal and maternal compensatory mechanisms to normalize the pH. A study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at the mechanical ventilation guided by esophageal pressure and acute lung injury. The authors reported that using um, transpulmonary pressures allowed for the differentiation of chest wall, lung, and respiratory system mechanics. They used the transpulmonary pressures to, uh, for a PEEP titration. They monitored for parenchymal lung stress, and they were able to use this to limit peak and inspiratory transpulmonary pressures. Um, they used the peak, PEEP titration um, for pulmonary by using transpulmonary pressures to zero to 10 centimeters of water at end expiration. They limited the tidal volume to mean transpulmonary pressures less than 25 millimeters of mercury at end inspiration. And their PACO2 ranged from about 40 to 60 millimeters of mercury. The primary endpoint of this study was arterial oxygenation as measured by um, the ratio of PaO2 to FiO2 72 hours after randomization. And the P to F after 72 hours of randomization was 88 millimeters of mercury higher in patients treated with mechanical ventilation with esophageal balloons than in the control patients. These improvements in the P to F ratio were achieved without elevating transpulmonary pressures at end inspiration above the physiologic range. There was no difference in the secondary outcomes between ventilator-free days at 28 days or ICU length of stay. Again, this has not been done in the pregnant population. In a manuscript that was submitted to anesthesia and analgesia, we talked about prone position ventilation in the pregnant population. And this was one of the um, comments from the reviewers. They asked to provide greater information about the impact of the gravid uterus on transpulmonary pressures at lung protective tidal volumes and adjusted for the tidal volumes of pregnancy, again, the increase of approximately 40%. Our response was that the use of increased tidal volumes during mechanical ventilation reflects our local practice. Again, there were instances that we had to increase our tidal volume above, generally not above eight cc's per kg, but in order to um, allow for lower PaCO2 and prevent patients from requiring ECMO. And while it has been speculated that transpulmonary pressures during pregnancy may be at baseline relatively less positive or more negative than the non-pregnant state, and thus pregnant patients would be more likely to undergo atelectasis, there simply have not been any hin uh, human or animal studies to evaluate this hypothesis. And similarly, the impact of transpulmonary pressure um, for, of compensating for increased tidal volume for pregnant patients during mechanical ventilation has not been subject to investigation. Um, and there's a lot of area that needs to be studied. What is the optimum level of PaCO2 during mechanical ventilation? Generally, we use the cutoff of 50 millimeters of mercury. And the main question becomes, where did this value even come from and why do we use this as a cutoff? 
when researching um, for our manuscripts and researching for this um, talk, there have been very few studies assessing the effect of maternal hypercapnia on the fetus in utero. Alternatively, we do know that hyperventilation and alkalosis should be avoided to prevent uterine vasoconstriction, decrease uterine blood flow, and fetal decelerations. Most of the studies that evaluated hypercarbia are short-term animal experience, uh, experiments that have been conducted with active, chronic, or acute instrumentation in varying species, primarily sheep models. And the hypercapnia in these studies was induced somewhat rapidly without providing time for those compensatory mechanisms to bring the pH to normal levels. Using a chronically catheterized, unanesthetized sheet model, Walker et al. demonstrated that uterine blood flow increased up until a PaCO2 of 60 millimeters of mercury. And beyond that, the uterine vascular resistance increased, resulting in decreased uterine blood flow. In the following study here that looked at 45 patients about to deliver, um, these patients were um, right around the time of delivery requiring a, um, and using, doing a forceps delivery. The authors rapidly induced hypercapnia in 45 term pregnant patients. The group with the higher PaCO2 showed that maternal hypercarbia actually increased umbilical vein oxygen tension, but did not significantly improve oxygen saturation. And these results are likely secondary to an acute shift in the oxygen hemoglobin uh, dissociation curve to the right, transient increases in cardiac output, and decreased uterine contractions, preserving blood flow to the uteroplacental unit. And this study, if I recall, came out in 1967, and probably something that we would not be able to replicate today. Um, in another study, um, during the course of labor in 68 patients, maternal and fetal capillary blood samples were taken simultaneously. And fetal capillary blood samples are done with a scal fetal scalp um, sampling. In five patients, hypocapnia was produced by the effect of um, overbreathing for four to six minutes. Two of these patients were conscious, breathing a 50-50 mixture of nitrous oxide and oxygen, and three were under general anesthesia for cesarean delivery. Alternatively, hypercapnia was produced in five conscious patients by breathing 7.6% carbon dioxide in oxygen through a face mask for two to 12 minutes. The figure on the right shows the relationship between maternal and fetal pCO2 among 30 patients in the first stage of labor with a relatively linear parallel relationship. And it's clear that in the first stage of labor, there's a positive gradient from fetus to mother, which is almost constant. And the fetal maternal gradient of approximately 8.8 .8 millimeters of mercury in the present series is similar to that quoted by authors, previous authors, authors that saw a gradient of about nine millimeters of mercury. And again, that's between the um, uterine flow um, and the fetal scalp sample. In four out of five patients, Overbreathing, so the figure on the left, resulted in a decrease of maternal and fetal PCO2. The largest changes, however, were seen with hyperventilation under general anesthesia. And the short duration of these experiments for four to six minutes demonstrated their rapidity of placental carbon dioxide transport. 
And lastly, the middle figure, which represents hypercapnia secondary to the inhalation of carbogen, all five patients with a maternal pCO2 rose within two to four minutes of breathing the carbogen. The fetal pCO2 also increased during this time, and the hypercapnia that was produced in the mother and fetus was accompanied by a small fall or a small decrease in the pH. And the standard bicarbonate values were either slightly increased or remained unchanged. Transitioning to the use of prone position ventilation in pregnancy, we look at the PERCEVA trial, which is a randomized control trial including 27 centers in Spain and France. Uh, the PERCEVA trial demonstrated that early application of prone positioning showed an improved 28-day survival when compared to patients that were not prone. This study set the stage for our proning protocols, including proning, proning for approximately 16 hours per day, for up to 28 days until no further benefit was seen. The benefits of prone positioning include generating a more homogeneous distribution of stress and strain in the lung parenchyma, and it more may lead to a more homogeneous inflation of the lungs and decreasing the risk of tidal hyperinflation of the non-dependent lung regions while decreasing the cyclic opening and closing of the alveolar units in the dependent lung. Prone positioning also improves lung recruitment by improving oxygenation in the dorsal aspect of the lungs, which makes up the greater lung mass compared to the ventral lungs. These changes in regional ventilation lead to a more homogeneous VQ distribution and less, um, and less shunting. It facilita facilitates drainage of respiratory secretions. And in the next slide, I'll show you how we prone to the pregnant patient. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the use of prone positioning in pregnancy gained a great deal of interest. And despite the wide use of prone positioning as part of the treatment for ARDS, the use of proning in pregnancy was primarily limited to case reports. Uh, recent investigations indicate that self-proning in the third trimester appears to be well tolerated by healthy volunteers without a substantial effect on maternal hemodynamics or fetal heart rate tracing. So we sought to assess the safety and effectiveness of prone positioning in pregnancy during ARD, with ARDS. And the image on the right just shows that primarily we were using the A-frame in order to alleviate the pressure on the gravid uterus. In a retrospective case series at our institution, we reviewed all pregnant and postpartum patients who were mechanically ventilated for COVID-19 pneumonia between March 2020 and June 2021. There were a total of 49 proning sessions in 13 patients. One patient was on ECMO um, when she underwent prone positioning. Maternal and fetal survival was 100%. Nine patients delivered while mechanically ventilated. None of the proning sessions were terminated urgently due to maternal hemodynamic instability, worsening oxygenation or ventilation, or fetal intolerance. We evaluated um, an ABG before proning and after proning and looked at the P to F ratio. Our study attests to the feasibility and tolerability of prone positioning during pregnancy, and continuous fetal monitoring um, was generally possible in this position without prolonged or concerning interruption in reviewing our data. We did not see an obvious impact of prone positioning on maternal arterial blood gas or ventilation parameters. Um, however, our study was underpowered to detect this difference. 
some of the reasons for our equivocal results may be that there was proactive initiation of prone positioning instead of a reactive. Um, the timing of ABG collection post-proning session may have been slightly delayed, and the effect of the prone positioning may have been attenuated after several hours of being in the supine position. In pregnancy, there's a decreased alveolar dead space at baseline, so perhaps um, the benefits is mitigated um, by this effect. And also there's an increase in the anterior posterior diameter of the chest wall in pregnancy, which promotes efficient gas exchange and distribution in the lungs, again, mitigating the effects of the improved VQ mismatch with prone positioning. The increased cardiac output of pregnancy may improve alveolar ventilation in the superior lung regions, further improving a ventilation perfusion matching, and again, mitigating the need for prone positioning. When is it appropriate to deliver these patients and will delivery improve maternal outcomes? So delivery should be certainly a multidisciplinary approach and decision, and each decision should be individualized, but when making this decision, we consider the following. The gestational age um, at um, admission, um, how long the patient has been continued on mechanical ventilation or ECMO, have there been any complications? Were, they, were we able to complete a steroid course, um, which generally is again 48 hours, so they're considered steroid complete 24 hours after the, sec the second or last dose of antenatal corticosteroids? The availability of staff, so our obstetricians, anesthesiologists, NICU team, the manpower in the ICU. Are we going into a night or weekend? The fetal status, have we had any issues with fetal decelerations, changes in variability, uterine contractions? Mode of delivery, do we think that we're going to have to take this person to the operating room? Can we facilitate a vaginal delivery at the bedside? Um, and will delivery improve maternal oxygenation or ventilation? And is it prefer preferable to utilize ECMO prior to delivery if we've maximized our mechanical ventilation strategies and we're still at a very premature gestational age? Again, one of the most frequent questions I was asked during COVID was whether delivery would improve maternal oxygenation and ventilation. Pinellas and colleagues evaluated the trend in the P to F ratio before and after delivery. This took place amongst uh, several hospitals in Texas between May 2020 and July 2020. They had a total of 61 patients that met criteria for ARDS. Delivery occurred in 21 or 34% of these patients during the hospitalization for COVID, and they had um, 17 patients that were included in their analysis. 10 of these 21 patients, 48%, um, were delivered preterm, and of these, six were delivered due to complications of COVID and four were delivered for obstetric indications. The slope of the P to F ratio before delivery was negative, indicating a decrease in the P to F ratio across time. The slope after the delivery was also negative, but less steep, ind indicating a less of a decrease in the P to F ratio across time after delivery. It is important to note that in their cohort, the mean gestational age at delivery was 38 weeks, which that makes the de decision to delivery a little bit easier than when the mean gestational age is less than 34 weeks. A recent study by Lipinski looked at um, 
respiratory parameters in 10 pregnant patients with ARDS, um, pulmonary edema, septic shock, and neurologic disease that of these patients that were delivered while on mechanical ventilatory support and found that oxygenation and PEEP showed in significant improvements 12 to 15 hours post-delivery. Though the mean P to F did not change, in both patients that had a P to F less than 100, the oxygenation improved greater than 40%, which may suggest that patients with more severe disease have the greatest benefit from delivery. In a similar study to Pinellas et al., we evaluated our outcomes at our institution um, to determine if delivery improved maternal oxygenation. In a cohort of 15 parturients, we found that the P to F improved 48 hours postpartum compared to the immediate postpartum period. 10 of our patients had pre-delivery P to F less than 200, and five patients had a P to F less than 100. The slope of the PDF ratios during mechanical ventilation was positive, and the mean PDF ratios immediately before and after delivery were not significantly different, but the PDF ratios were significantly higher at 48 hours after delivery compared to immediately after delivery, potentially suggesting a benefit in delivery and that the more remote you get from delivery, the more that the, um, you're returning to pre-pregnancy physiology and potential benefit from delivery. Returning to the question of can we prevent emergent cesarean deliveries in the ICU, looked at several of the studies um, that reported outcomes during COVID, as well as our outcomes in a cohort of 21 patients on ECMO at our institution. So in the study by Pinellas et al., um, among the uh, patients that they had that delivered on while with mechanical support, um, they had one emergent delivery in the setting of maternal cardiac arrest, and they had two maternal deaths. In our study that looked at uh, 15 patients that delivered um, with mechanical um, ventilation, we had five emergent deliveries at the bedside in the ICU. We did not have any maternal deaths. Of these emergent deliveries, three of them occurred peri-intubation. And when we look at our cohort of 21 patients, this was prior to the COVID, we looked at uh, 21 patients that were um, VV or VA ECMO. We looked at post-pregnant and postpartum patients. Six of those patients required um, ECMO during the antepartum period. Three patients delivered while on ECMO. And of those three, one there was one emergent bedside delivery. And among our 21 patients, there were six maternal deaths. Reasons for emergent delivery at the bedside include non-reassuring fetal heart tones, peri-intubation. As I said, three out of five of our emergent deliveries um, were in the setting of intubation and um, unable to recover the fetal heart rate. Self-extubation, maternal hypoxemia, and terminal bradycardia, uh, maternal cardiac arrest. Um, and again, delivery at the bedside is certainly not a benign process. Two patients in our cohort that were delivered in the ICU required re-exploration in the operating room following bedside delivery. This is why we may consider delivery at 32 to 34 weeks, which balances the risks associated with neonatal prematurity against the risk of emergent delivery in the ICU. 
And during COVID, this was my threshold for delivery was the 32 to 34 week mark, depending on how the patient had been doing their hospital course and what I foresaw their trajectory to be. And lastly, we wanted to look at neonatal outcomes with regards to maternal uh, PaCO2. So in a um, uh, oral presentation um, at the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, we presented on the relationship of maternal PaO2, PaCO2, and acid-base outcomes uh, status on neonatal outcomes. As st stated previously, there's really little data exists to guide ventilatory management for those patients with ARDS in pregnancy. And an arterial pressure of, P of, uh, sorry, of PaCO2 of less than 50 has been traditionally suggested, but this is based on a very limited study um, with acute changes in um, PaCO2 values. So our study analyzed the relationship between maternal acid-based status and fetal outcomes in parturients who delivered while requiring mechanical ventilation for um, COVID and ARDS. In total, there were 23 um, patients on mechanical ventilation and four who required venovenous ECMO in addition to mechanical ventilation because of the severity of their ARDS. The average gestational age at time of delivery was 33 weeks. And the median day of delivery post-admission was hospital day number four. 44% of our patients were Hispanic or Latino, and 30% were non-Hispanic Black. 70% uh, delivered in the operating room, and 30% um, were delivered as an emergent bedside cesarean delivery. The average birth weight of the neonate was 20, 40, uh, 2,044 grams, with a standard deviation of 625 grams and the median NICU stay was 23 days. At delivery, 11 of the newborns, or 48%, required intubation, 39% required CPAP, and 13% were stable on room air. The median APGAR score at one minute was four, and at five minutes was seven. No maternal or fetal deaths occurred. Looking at the PACO2, the umbilical artery, which is seen on the right here, um, and umbilical vein, which is seen on the left in the top charts, the ranges were higher than normal. The maternal PACO2 ranged from 14 to 74 in the peri-delivery period. And just immediately prior to delivery, the range was approximately 29 to 52, with a mean of 37 and a standard deviation of 6. There is a positive correlation between maternal PCO2 prior to delivery and umbilical vein and umbilical artery PCO2 in a relatively linear relationship. In addition, there's a positive correlation between maternal pH and umbilical artery and venous pH. Maternal PACO2 also correlated with an APGAR score at one in five minutes. Figure E on the top left and F, which is on the top right, shows a statistically significant inverse relationship between the maternal PACO2 and the APGAR sc scores both at one and five minutes respectively. As the maternal PACO2 increased, the APGAR scores decreased. Furthermore, looking at these graphs, a maternal PACO2 greater than 40 was associated with an APGAR score at one minute less than or equal to five, and a maternal PACO2 of greater than 45 
was associated with an APGAR score at one minute less than or equal to three and at five minutes less than five. We also looked at the relationship between uh, maternal oxygen and APGAR scores, and at delivery, the PaO2 did not correlate with APGAR scores, most likely because the umbilical vein and artery PaO2 with, were within the normal range. In conclusion, the umbilical cord gases showed normal pH and PaO2 values. PaO2 PA, oh, CO2 values exceeded the normal range in both umbilical artery and umbilical vein samples. And a maternal PaCO2 of 40 to 45 pre-delivery was associated with worse APGAR scores. And ventilation strategies in pregnant women with ARDS may consider the PaCO2 levels less than 40 millimeters of mercury. There are many interactions to consider when caring for the critically ill obstetric patient, and the interplay between the placenta, the fetus, and the parturient are complex and require a detailed understanding of the physiologic changes um, of pregnancy in order to successfully care for these patients. Thank you for joining us today, and I'm happy to take any questions that you may have.